0: We did push that. You know these people. Oh I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, What ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. The globalized takeover of our commons is being orchestrated by a handful of elites so small in number, you could fit them into one prison cell. So says Dustin Broadberry, a blogger based in London who has been researching and writing about the quote-unquote new normal for the past two years, and, in his own words, quote, particularly the legal and ethical issues around lockdowns and mandates, the history and roadmap to today's biosecurity state, and the key players and institutions involved in the globalized takeover of our commons, end quote. The writer goes on to say that aside from COVID-19, he writes about the intelligence state, big tech surveillance, big philanthropy, and the co-opting of activism. And all of that is just some of the reasons why Dustin Broadberry will be my very special guest for this edition of Open Mic Night. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Running. On the About section of his Substack page, Dustin says, quote, As a lowly writer trying to make sense of the new normal, I have produced a solid body of work these past two years, with each piece meticulously researched and authoritatively referenced, end quote. And I gotta tell you folks, as a lowly content creator trying to make sense of the new normal myself, I find the pieces that Dustin has written to be exactly as he described it, and I think his is a voice that should be heard. Which is why I have chosen to share the following with all of you. If you like what you are hearing tonight, and you would like to support Dustin's work, I will include links on the show notes to his Substack, his Patreon, and his blog, which resides at thecogent.org, which is where tonight's piece comes from. Titled, How the West Was Won Counter-Insurgency PsyOps and the Military Origins of the Internet. Part 1. As written by Dustin Brock. Posted March 4th, 2022 at decogent.org As the digital revolution was underway in the mid-90s, research departments at the CIA and NSA were developing programs to predict the usefulness of the World Wide Web as a tool for capturing what they dubbed quote-unquote birds-of-a-feather formations. That's when flocks of sparrows make sudden movements together in rhythmical patterns. They were particularly interested in how these principles would influence the way that people would eventually move together On the burgeoning internet, would groups and communities move together in the same way as quote-unquote birds of a feather so that they could be tracked in an organized way? And if their movements could be indexed and recorded, could they be identified later by their digital fingerprints? To answer these questions, the CIA and NSA established a series of initiatives called Massive Digital Data Systems, MDDS, to directly fund tech entrepreneurs through an inter-university disbursement program. Naming their first unclassified briefing for computer scientists, quote unquote, Birds of a Feather, which took place in San Jose in the spring of 1995. Among the first grants provided by the MDDS program to capture the quote unquote Birds of a Feather theory towards building a massive digital library and indexing system using the Internet as its backbone were dispersed to two Stanford University PhDs, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who were making significant headways in. the development of web page ranking technology that would track user movements online. Those disbursements, together with 4.5 million dollars in grants from a multi-agency consortium, including NASA and DARPA, became the seed funding that was used to establish Google. Eventually, MDDS was integrated into DARPA's global eavesdropping and data mining activities that would attempt total information awareness over US citizens. Few understand the extent to which Silicon Valley is the alter ego of Pentagon Land. Even fewer realize the impact this has had on the social sphere. But the story does not begin with Google, nor the military origins of the internet. It goes back much further in time, to the dawn of counter-insurgency and psyops during the Second World War. According to historian Joy Rhodes, a renowned physicist told U.S. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara in 1961, quote, while World War One." might have been considered the chemists or, and World War II was considered the physicists or, World War III might well have to be considered the social scientists or The intersection of social science and military intelligence is recognized by the U.S. Army to have begun during World War I when pre-war journalist Captain Blankenhorn established the psychological subsection in the War Department to coordinate combat propaganda. These gray area operations, as they became known, plateaued during World War II when military strategists, building on wartime research in crowd psychology, drafted social scientists into the war effort through the Office of Scientific Research and Development (OSRD). The office would aggregate information about the German people and develop Propaganda and Psychological Operations psyops, to lower their morale. This culminated in 1942 with the U.S. federal government becoming the leading employer of psychologists in the U.S. OSRD was an early administration of the Manhattan Project and responsible for important wartime developments in technology, including radar. The agency was directed by engineer and inventor Vannevar Bush, a key player in the history of computing, known for his work on the MIMEX, an early hypothetical computer device that would store and index a user's books, records, and other information, and which would go on to inspire most major advancements in the development of personal computers over the next 70 years. As the Second World War ended and a new threat emerged from post-war ravaged Europe, scholars and soldiers once again reunited to defeat an invisible and aggressively expansionist adversary. Across the Soviet satellites in Europe and in the nations threatened by communism in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, Cold War Special Operations as they became known, were a nebulous category of military activity that included psychological and political warfare, guerrilla operations, and counterinsurgency. To mobilize these special warfare tactics, the army established the Office of the Chief of Psychological Warfare, OCPW, in 1951, whose mission was to recruit, organize, equip, train, and provide doctrinal support to Psy-Warriors. The office was directed by General Robert McClure, a founding father of psychological warfare and friend of the Shah of Iran, who was instrumental in the overthrow of Mohammad Masadegh in the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat. Integral to the projects of McClure's OCPW was a quasi-academic institution with a long history of military service called the Human Relations Area Files, HRAF. Founded by anthropologist-turned-FBI whistleblower George Murdoch, HRAF was set up to collect and standardize data on primitive cultures around the world. During World War II, its researchers worked hand in glove with naval intelligence to develop propaganda materials that would help the U.S. liberate Pacific nations from Japanese control. By 1954, the department had grown into an inter-university consortium of 16 academic institutions, funded by the Army, CIA, and private philanthropies. In 1954, the OCPW negotiated a contract with the HRAF to author a series of special warfare handbooks, disguised as scholarship, that sought to understand the intellectual and emotional character of strategically important people, particularly their thoughts, motivations, and actions, with entire chapters compiled on the attitudes and subversive potentials of foreign nationals, while other chapters focused on the means of transmitting propaganda in each target nation, whether news, radio, or word of mouth. This was, of course, decades before the Internet. In 1956, the Special Operations Research Office, SORO, emerged from these programs. Charged with managing the U.S. Army's psychological and unconventional warfare tactics during the Cold War and taking the work of HRAF to the next level, SORO set about the monumental task of defining the political and social causes of communist revolution, the laws governing social change, and the theories of communication and persuasion that could be used to transform public perception. S.O.R.O. formed a central component of the Pentagon's militarization of social research, and particularly the ideas and doctrine that would usher in a gradual shift towards an American-led world order. Its research team was located on the campus of American University in Washington, D.C., and comprised the era's preeminent intellectuals and academics. S.O.R.O.'s ensemble team from the fields of psychology, sociology, and anthropology would immerse themselves in social system theory, analyzing the society and culture of numerous target countries, particularly in Latin America, while confronting the universal laws governing social behavior and the mechanisms of communication and persuasion in each jurisdiction. If the U.S. Army could understand the psychological factors that sparked revolution, they could, in theory, Predict and intercept revolutions before they got off the ground. S.O.R.O. was part of a rapidly expanding nexus of federally funded research centers, F.C.R.C.s, that reoriented academia towards national security interests, working at the intersection of science and the state. S.O.R.O.N.s, as they were known, advocated for an expert-directed democracy, regardless of the totalitarian consequences of social engineers and technical acquiring control over the thoughts, actions, and values of ordinary people. In those early days of the Cold War, academics and scientists, working at the intersection of military and academia, firmly believed that intellectuals should guide geopolitics. This was accepted as the most stable form of governance to take the free world into the next century. It explains how we have arrived under the rubric of the quote-unquote settled science today, or at least politics. Masquerading as science, from the biosecurity state to the fundamentalism of climate science, much of what was achieved in those golden years of militarized social research shapes the 21st century. By 1962, 66 federally funded military research institutions were in operation. Between 1951 to 1967, the number tripled while funding skyrocketed from $122 million to $1. $1.6 billion. But as opposition to the Vietnam War intensified in the 1960s, a growing number of intellectuals, policymakers, and academics became increasingly concerned that the national security state was morphing into the statist, globalist force it had been fighting during the Cold War, and began publicly criticizing Pentagon-funded social scientists as technocratic social engineers. This inspired a wave of discontent for the militarization of social research to grip America, culminating in 1969, with American universities administrators banishing SORO from their campus and severing ties with their military partners. The move was endemic of the changing attitude towards these gray area special operations and resulted in the 1960s and 1970s with the excommunication of military research centers from university campuses across the U.S., a move that forced the military to look elsewhere, towards the private sector sector for their alternative warfare capabilities. Following a long tradition of public-private military cooperation, from the Rand Corporation to the Smithsonian Group, these quasi-private institutions were being spun out of the military at a rate of knots since the 1940s. One of the programs conceived by SORO was, quote, methods for predicting and influencing social change and internal war potential, end quote. Codenamed Project Camelot, the landmark program sought to understand the causes of social revolution and identify actions within the realm of behavioral science that could be taken to suppress insurrection. The goal, according to defense analyst Joy Rhodes, was, quote, to build a radar system for left-wing revolutionaries, end quote. A sort of, quote, computerized early warning system that could predict and prevent political movements before they ever got off the ground. This computer system, writes Joy Rhodes, could check up-to-date intelligence Intelligence against a list of preconditions, and revolutions could be stopped before the instigators even knew they were headed down the path of revolution." End quote. The research collected by Project Camelot would produce predictive models of the revolutionary process and profile what social scientists deemed unquote, revolutionary tendencies and traits. It was anticipated that such knowledge would not only help military leaders anticipate the trajectory of social change, but it would also enable them to design effective interventions that could, in theory, channel or suppress change in ways that were favorable to US foreign policy interests. It was intended that the information gathered by Project Camelot would funnel into a large computerized database for forecasting, social engineering, and counterinsurgency that could be tapped at any time by the military and intelligence community. But the project was beleaguered by controversy when academics and South America discovered its military funding and imperialism motives. The ensuing backlash resulted in Project Camelot being ostensibly shut down, though the core of its project survived. Multiple military research projects picked up on Project Camelot's early warning radar system for left-wing revolutionaries, while its computerized database for forecasting, social engineering, and counterinsurgency went on to inspire a nascent technology developed in the years to come that would eventually become known to the world as the Internet. As Sasha Levine reveals in his groundbreaking book Surveillance Valley, at the height of the Cold War, US military commanders were pursuing a decentralized computer communications system without a base of operations or headquarters that could withstand a Soviet strike without blacking out or destroying the entire network. The project was coordinated by by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, created by President Eisenhower in 1958 for the development of technologies that would expand the frontiers of science and technology and help the US close the missile gap with the Soviets. DARPA has since been at the vanguard of every major advancement in the development of personal computers ever since the Cold War, culminating in 1969 with the first computers being in universities across the US. A few years later, DARPA would develop the protocols to enable connected computers to communicate transparently across multiple networks. Known as the Interneting Project, DARPA's prototype communications network, the ARPANET, was born in 1973. The project was eventually transferred to the Defense Communications Agency and integrated into the numerous new networks that had emerged. By 1983, the ARPANET was divided into two constituents, Milnet to be used by military and defense agencies, while the civilian version would retain the ARPANET handle. Fast forward to 1990, and the ARPANET was officially decommissioned, and the internet privatized to a consortium of corporations, including IBM and MCI. Eventually, the federal government created a dozen or so network providers and spun them off to the private sector, building companies that would become the backbone of today's internet, including Verizon, Time Warner, AT&T, and Comcast. That's four out of just six corporations who not only own 90% of U.S. media outlets, they control the flow of global communications through a process of absolute vertical horizontal alignment of legacy media with digital media and the infrastructures and technologies that enable their mass communication, including cable, satellite, and wireless, the devices and hardware, software, and operating systems. A central player in the development of of the ARPANET, who many consider the founding father of computing, was American psychologist J.C.R. Licklider. Lick, as he was known, was the first director of the agency tasked with executing DARPA's information technology programs, the Information Processing Techniques Office, IPTO, that has been responsible for just about every major advancement in computer communications since the 60s. As Stephen J. Lukaszek, a contributor to the ARPANET project, reflected in his paper, Why the ARPANET was built. Quote, Lick saw information technology and behavioral and cognitive science issues as connected, End quote. Lick was essentially predicting how the internet would go on to evoke real-world social processes that would radically transform how we communicate, organize, and process information. It is no coincidence that a psychologist of Lick's caliber was at the vanguard of a new technology designed to exploit basic vulnerabilities in the human psyche. In the 1960s, Lick oversaw DARPA's strategic interest in a new frontier of information technology called Brain-Computer Interfaces, BCIs. In his famous paper, Man-Computer Symbiosis, published in 1960, considered one of the most important in the history of computing, Lick put forward the then-radical idea that the human mind would one day merge seamlessly with computers. He was anticipating the evolution of AI and the role that DARPA would go on to play in funding just about every major advancement in BCI technology over eight decades, including Elon Musk's fully implanted wireless brain machine interface company, Neuralink. The ARPANET brought together the Pentagon's war machine with university research departments and the Bay Area's counterculture scene, inspiring much of the anecdotal idealism that would define the early years of cyberspace as a liberating new front for humanity. Cyberspace, it was lauded by its early adopters, would free information and provide universal connectivity. The realms of possibility were indeed endless. But Warhawks and intelligence analysts had other ideas. Ideas. If the lessons of the Vietnam War were anything to go by, the future of U.S. warfare would not be with nation-states, it would be with ideologies, or more specifically, grassroots movements such as the Viet Cong who had the power to stoke the flames of civil unrest that could lead to uprisings, or worse, revolution. Alternative approaches were, therefore, needed to infiltrate and disrupt this new threat to the free world. As the war raged in Southeast Asia, another psychology. PhD, Robert Taylor, joined DARPA as the agency's third director. Taylor transferred to Vietnam in 1967 to establish the first computer center at the Military Assistance Command Base in Saigon, a central pillar in the DoD's psychological warfare operations. The move was endemic of the changing rules of military engagement that saw DARPA, and indeed this new technology, playing a major role in the war effort, both in Southeast Asia and at home on U.S. soil against the growing anti-war movement. In 1968, Taylor and Lick published their seminal paper, The Computer as a Communication Device, laying out the future of what the Internet would eventually become. The paper began with the visionary statement, quote, In a few years, men will be able to communicate more effectively through a machine than face-to-face, end quote, anticipating the meteoric rise of social media, particularly Facebook, in the decades to come. The origin The origins of Facebook coincide with a controversial military program that was mysteriously shut down the same year Facebook launched. The military program in question, LifeLog, was developed by DARPA's Information Processing Techniques Office, with the stated aim of creating a permanent and searchable electronic diary of a person's entire life, a data set of their most personal information, including their movements, conversations, connections, and everything they listened to, watched, read and bought. But would people willingly give up a record of their private lives to a military intelligence social media platform? Probably not. Enter Facebook. LifeLog, meanwhile, was ostensibly shut down, but this was not the first nor the last time that a project of this magnitude would be proposed. In a 1945 article for the Atlantic, Vannevar Bush, who directed the US Army's psychological operations during World War II, discussed his hypothetical project, the Memex, as a a device, quote, in which an individual stores all his books, records, and communications, and which is mechanized so that it may be consulted with exceeding speed and flexibility, end quote. In immortalizing people's lives, it was hoped that LifeLog would eventually contribute to the emerging field of artificial intelligence that would one day think just like a human, intersecting with another DARPA-backed project, the Personal Assistant That Learns, P-A-L, or PAL, a cognitive computing system, System designed to make military decision-making more efficient, which was eventually spun off as Siri, the virtual assistant on Apple's operating system, present in the homes of one billion unsuspecting people. But LifeLog is just one part of the story. There was another DARPA program that also disappeared one year before Facebook made its debut, often cited as the precursor to Facebook. The Information Awareness Office IAO, brought together several DARPA surveillance and information technology projects, including MDDS, which provided Google's seed funding. The stated aim of the IAO was to gather and store the personal information of every U.S. citizen, including their personal emails, social networks, lifestyles, credit card records, phone calls, and medical records, without, of course, the need for a search warrant. This information would funnel back to intelligence agencies under the guise of predicting and preventing terrorist incidents before they happened, reminiscent of Project Camelot's early warning radar system for left-wing revolutionaries. Despite the government apparently abandoning their gambit for total information awareness over ordinary Americans, the core of the project survived. I draw your attention to Palantir, the spooky data analytics firm founded by Facebook's board member Peter Thiel. Portrayed as science fiction in the film Minority Report, Palantir's predictive policing analytics have been deployed extensively against insurgents in Iraq and by police departments in the U.S. This is, of course, nothing new for the Chinese. The convergence of big tech data analytics with social credits has been put to good use by the CCP to weed out and punish dissidents who can find themselves held indefinitely without charge or trial in political re-education camps for holding the wrong set of political beliefs. But it must also be accepted. These Orwellian methods of repression did not originate in China. The encroachment of the CIA onto the public sphere has been happening since the 1960s, when the US imported decades of counterinsurgency from the Soviet satellites to tackle the anti-war and civil rights movements. This was ramped up in the wake of 9-11, and now, through the back door of COVID-19, total information awareness is coming home to roost, as China's social credits system has been implemented on the back Of the green pass before anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists you had civil rights and anti-war activists the ideology guiding dissent may have changed but the military tactics used to counter it remain the same for the acr i'm adam clark and this has been the daily ruckus for monday june 20th 2022 for more information please visit alternatecurrentradio.com